Um, I'm going to keep this informal, uh, a bit of a fireside chat, um, sort of uh, gets me off the hook in terms of doing hard research for this lecture. What I should do is just start off by explaining who I am, so you know where I'm coming from. I, I am not an academic expert. I, I do work at the LSE and we've taught the Masters in Privacy for 10 years, but that, that's more like a fireside chat as well. It's trying to insert society into a discipline that was originally bereft of any interest in society, apart from big S society. What we tried to do was engage the policy process and try to understand how privacy functions in the real world, how it affects real people doing real things on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. And my job is to be a, basically a bastard, a troublemaker. Uh, that's what I do. Privacy International causes trouble. That's what it's famous for. It's uh, managed to suspend the activities of banking conglomerates and government departments and major corporations. And it does so in the spirit of principle to bring to life the... Uh, the uh, foundations of, of, of privacy and data protection uh, and to try and sort of get them into some sort of life form so people understand that they are real and that they cannot just be technically interpreted. Um, so this is a bit of a ramble, so you'll have to forgive me, we can obviously ramble further in question time, but this gives me an opportunity to set up what are going to be far more structured lectures later in the series uh, from you know, people who have, who have drilled very deeply into this subject. My job is to perhaps draw a tapestry. Now, because everybody's going to be coming from different perspectives and disciplines and will have different levels of understanding, I'm not going to assume uh, detailed knowledge for everybody. So what I want to do is just try and bring things to... Uh, a, a sort of gentle start. Um, and this won't be a lecture that uh, David uh, was necessarily anticipating because I'm quite sure that it will uh, uh, be a little bit um, combative in some respects. Uh, I do not respect data protection. I never have. I think it's been destroyed largely. Uh, not just through abuse, but through lack of care. Uh, it hasn't been maintained, and that doesn't mean it should be modernised, because to modernise something usually means to destroy it, to weaken it, in the data protection sense. What it means is that more energy has been spent trying to find exemptions, uh, exceptions, uh, try and wheedle through the loopholes and the black holes, rather than to actually adhere to the spirit of data protection. And that has been... Uh, an overriding motivation for certainly the past 15 years, to the point where there's relatively few people actually believe any longer that data protection can save the day when it comes to global privacy. Uh, but I'll come to that shortly. But just so that we can say there was one slide we all agreed on. There it is. There's your data protection <laughs> principles. That we all agree on those. Uh, at least that they exist, not that they work. Um, and then the common sense, we, did a, we were over in Mountain View and uh, talked to Google, our old enemies. Uh, we were public enemy number, I was public enemy number one for five years to Google. We had my face on a dartboard in the engineering department, it was quite fun. Uh, but when we finally sort of kissed and made up, 
and said we worked together. Uh, we did a tech talk in Mountain View where actually everybody agreed, all the, all the engineers agreed in the soundness of these principles. So bizarrely, here we are, cutting edge of technology, and those principles seem to have somehow survived. However, there are some questions that trouble me and that you, know, you should think of uh, as well. Um, are those pillars starting to crumble is an important one. Now, there's, there's two types of people asking two types of questions on that first one. There are the people who genuinely are concerned about privacy and want to know if there's anything they can do to strengthen the pillars. And there's those, and I think of the advertising industry or any number of others, who say, well, they've started to crumble, so we may as well just get rid of the debris uh, and create a, um, a, a sort of opt-out platform uh, for the world. Um, and, and they come very much from a perspective which I, I do kind of share some sympathy which, with, which is if you were to apply the principles of, of, of data protection to, let's say, the internet, would we have an internet as we know it now? Would we have a mobile sector, a mobile industry, the way we have it now? And I'm not entirely sure we would. Um, and that's a bit of a problem. If we do, if, if, if what if you did apply those principles to the, to the internet in its development, it would be very, very difficult <coughs> to create what we have now. So you know, it's okay whinging at Facebook as we do routinely and say, you know, people really do not understand. But as Facebook said, well, you're perfectly happy for information exchange. Uh, why are you complaining now? You know, why didn't you have a go at Tim Berners-Lee or whoever else back, you know, back in the day? So I can see that level of accused hypocrisy, and I'm perfectly prepared to sort of uh, deal with that on a case-by-case basis. The thing, and, and I must say that we do, um, when I call myself a privacy, not an extremist, but a privacy practitioner, it doesn't mean that I don't work and I don't care uh, for other related rights, such as uh, the right to know, the right of freedom of expression. I mean, if you take a look at the advisory board of Privacy International, it's 125 of the top brains in the world, and a big proportion come from those sectors. So we're not isolated in that sense. So you know, there might be that sort of view that people who come from the privacy domain who are professional troublemakers somehow don't get it that there's a big world out there, actually we do. Actually 80% of our work is collaborative with those practitioners from other rights. Uh, that's what makes this a fascinating field. But if it is starting to crumble, I'm curious to know who caused it and why. I'm, I'm interested in the dynamics, the drivers. Was it a conspiracy or was it just that data protection in the face of emerging technologies and information exchange simply was not sustainable. Uh, I'll come to that shortly. And of course, the two issues relating to citizens is have we been cut out of the deal if there is a new deal, a new deal, by the way, for uh, minimal privacy protections, shortcuts in privacy, and you might call this privacy 3.0. Uh, in other words, um, proportionality. Some people call that pragmatism. Uh, I think uh, Julie Brill, who I respect enormously, FTC Commissioner, says basically under Privacy 3.0, there will be no differentiation between 
personal information and non-personal information. The advertising industry wades in and says, well, this is our opportunity to actually create a situation where you're only notified if it's an unusual use of your information. You know, a bit like the national uh, census here, where they decided that they were going to give a, a US arms company the contract to process our information. That was an unusual use of our data, and we should have been notified. You see, that's the difference. Privacy 1.0, if you like, was notification. It was notice, and it was consent. Privacy 3 moves way, way, way down, uh, you know, down the passageway. But you know, I think the problem privacy three is that it risks being yet another tagline, another cliche. Uh, the problem with this field is it doesn't have much imagination, and you know, so somebody comes up with a, a catchphrase, and everyone latches onto it, and sometimes they create academic papers out of it. So, uh, privacy-enhancing technologies, which is basically 1990s cryptography, uh, that didn't work, so we had. Privacy by design, you know, it's a 1990s cryptography with a value statement stuck in the end somewhere. Uh, these became just simply catchphrases. What's the, the latest is, of course, the right to forget. Uh, <coughs> that's the cool one. Everyone's writing papers on the right to forget now. Because um, it makes you wonder why, if data protection, I mean, if data protection was going to work, then we wouldn't need to have that discussion in the first place because we would have that built into our systems. Um, is that mine? Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Uh, but let's just keep calling it Privacy 3 for the fun of it and, uh, and see where it takes us. Just a bit of history. This is how data protection started. <coughs> what I want to talk about a little bit is about silos and busting silos and do silos work. And this is the beginning, this is how data protection started. Okay? Lots of people, you've got to realise in the 1960s, people were scared witless about computers. Anybody, everybody seen Yes Minister, I'm sure. You will have seen the Big Brother episode. It genuinely was a reflection of the times in the 60s and 70s that people were scared. David Burnham, a great uh, privacy academic uh, in, the, uh, in the United States, wrote frequently about the fear that people had of the computer, the rise of the computer state. And the same applied here in Europe. So lots of computers, lots of data, and aggrieved people. That's how data protection starts. Yes, there were other drivers, and we want to create a common market, you know, free flow of data. The reality was that the drivers underneath were fear. And you know, a lot of the popular literature at that time expressed that. But what's happened, interestingly, is this is the modern one. Social interoperability generates lots of data exchange, but the same outcome, lots of pissed off people, potentially. But those are two, you know, it's the same kind of three-box effect, but how far we've come in 35 years. This, I think, is the kernel of the problem we face. When we talk about, uh, and this will be central to the series, of course, is the review of European data protection, how does any review of data protection fit into that matrix? So, okay, let's take it a step further. There we are, three silos again. Institutions, individual, society. Data moving through from institutions, affecting individuals, ultimately affecting society. 
And what data protection did, and we're talking 30 to 35 years ago, was intercede there to institutions and individuals in an effort somehow to filter the data before it got to society. So it could create a better society by interceding as close as possible to the institutions, stopping the wrong data being processed, stopping uh, uh, the collection of, of, of data that can be used for surveillance or for control. But again, flip to the modern situation, the, the current situation, and what we see is that there's a reversal. Data has been generated by individuals. They're the processes. It's individuals who are making, uh, who are becoming centre of the equation. And this is causing an almighty <coughs> headache at so many levels, at the, uh, the level of principle, at the level of philosophy, at the level of practice with the people who are trying to make data protection work. So what you've got to do now is stick that inter intersection there between the individuals and the institutions. And that's the reason why. Apps, applications. You couple that with the mobile network and the, what was laughing they called the, the Internet of Things, which is basically the uh, universe of devices, particularly RFID devices, <coughs> and you have completely screwed your framework. That isn't a simple data flow. That data flow is moving everywhere. Now how, how on earth do we create a data protection framework for the future that has regard to these little babies? How? Apps are democratized. I mean, this is a democratic uh, sector. I mean, anybody can do it. I've spoken to, I've talked to, you know, developers, you know, teenage developers working in their bedroom in Turkmenistan, and, uh, you know, this is their great golden hope. You know, this is the equivalent of uh, you being framed, you know, sending in your little film and getting a 200 quid in a, you know, 15 minutes of fame. Apps do that for you. They allow you, as as a coder, as a programmer, as a thinker or creator, they allow you to step up in the world and, 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 to, be and to be noticed, to make a change. So, so they permeate, they're ingrained in everything, everything that is to do with technology and communications. When they link with the Internet of Things, I have to say I'm not sure that there's any data protection framework in the world that's going to work. Because if you take a look at some of the flowcharts, and honestly, I didn't have enough hours in the day to produce one of the flowcharts for you, but if you can imagine that and multiply it by 60, take a look at the flows between the applications, the devices, and the communications frameworks, and what you've got is essentially, as I say, democratization of all information. Now, that's the question, you know, because I, I, I tend to sort of have the misfortune of hanging around a lot of regulators and those who think about these things, and there's you know, half a dozen uh, that think about these things. I think of people like Alexander Dix, the Berlin commissioner. Um, this is one of the areas that tests their, uh, that challenges them. How, have, have we gone so far now that we cannot rein in the horses? Part of the problem, of course, is we don't have any standards <laughs> that apply to this area. Um, there is a multiplicity of standards that exist. 
and I'm not entirely sure there's anything we can do to create interoperability between those standards. Um, it doesn't help that the regulators generally are timid, gutless, under-resourced, um, unable to find the spine or the stomach to actually take issues on that are complex or controversial. Uh, our regulators, our commissioners, by and large, are a fairly apathetic lot. Um, and you might be uh, amused to know that after what is it, 25, 27 years, <coughs> 25 years, the Information Commissioner's Office here, responsible for data protection, has just hired its first technical person. Hurrah! First technical person in 25 years, and they're responsible for regulating information flows from technology. These are people who got sent into the Google HQ to read the, uh, the, the, the Wi-Fi payload. Remember when Google were going around collecting everybody's Wi-Fi accidentally? And um, we'd take them to Scotland Yard, it'd become a major issue. Uh, so they sent the information commissioners a lot in. But basically accountants. So you put accountants in front of a Google payload of data, and Google says, hit, hit control F, see what you can find. Well, of course, that's... Any technologist here will know that the the real payload is something that you can't you know, control F through. It's all behind the screens. Somewhere else you can't see. So when you have regulators who are so far behind the curve on technology, uh, who don't understand the interrelationship between streams of technology and streams of information, how on earth can they possibly be expected? to regulate. And that's a problem with finding, you know, if you look at Keneal, which is the Commission uh, National in, in, in France, who are the ICO's equivalent in France, it's only recently that, you know, they considered anything but, the, you know, the typewriter of threat. We had a problem with Keneal, with, you know, early old regulators, uh, presidents, uh, who just not only didn't understand technology, but took the idea of technological neutrality to its, to its ultimate point and said, we don't care. Mobile telephones, not a problem. They didn't know what they did or how they worked. Uh, identity systems, I'll come to identity systems in a minute, that's another interesting one. But just continuing this theme of, of silos and breaking down of silos, this, this, is, a, this is the classic sort of 80s... Um, to, to the first half of the 90s, uh, silo dimensions of privacy. This is, this is how people interpret it. It's very two-dimensional. You saw this, the history of data protection is all two-dimensional. See the panels here. Uh, it's all very convenient, and you can check boxes there if you want. Uh, as we move through the 90s, okay, information privacy becomes more centred. It, it drives these other two boxes, bodily privacy and territorial privacy, to take centre ground. So, you know, you, you take a condense all of that, you've got all of this stuff here. But what has really happened, this is the exciting bit of the last 10 years, is people are now starting to move from the two dimensional model of interpretation to something else. As that sort of information develops new dimensions, as you see here, different motivations, different uh, circumstances, you end up with a situation where this is the model that emerges. 
That is the new privacy matrix. Not two-dimensional at all. Not even three, but chaotically dimensional. And that's the way uh, people who are starting to think about public policy are now looking at privacy. It's a bit like Doctor Who's interpretation of time, you know, timey-wimey, wibbly-wobbly. That's, that's what privacy is. It's more the Doctor Who interpretation of time and timelines. It defies logic, structure, or predictability. It is subject to context and circumstance. It is not a clean two-dimensional thing that you can just apply exemptions across. I think that's been the big breakthrough of the past ten years, is that thinking people are now saying, oh, right, we accept there's no... There's no lines that we can follow along privacy. There's no prediction. You can't, for example, predict an outcome of a privacy uh, issue. <clears throat> it, will, it, will, it, will, it will change mid-course. And this, I think, is, is where it gets terribly exciting. Because what you're seeing there is the manifestation, not just of society, but the individual. And that's, that's taking centre ground. And all of the developments that you're going to be hearing about in, in this series will be talking about the complexity of the issue. Nobody fools themselves any longer into thinking data protection is another box that you can tick. <coughs> it's just not working that way. Because all of the emerging areas are becoming immeasurably complex. Uh, I'll give you a look at identity, for example. This is a view. Again, going back to the 70s. There it is. Very simple. People, identity society. People, through responsible identity, lead to a stronger society, or a better, or a more controlled, or a more whatever. And it was actually conceptually at the time, and data protection wrapped around this fairly well. Um, there's your data flow. It's fairly simple. Uh, we just have to shore up the middle bit. You know, so you know, Estonia wants a, an identity system. Well, make sure that we apply those principles that we all agreed on uh, and we'll be fine. Um, not quite so, because again, as we move into the 80s, take a look at what happens. Again, courtesy of technology. Suddenly you've got things like authentication versus verification. You've got a greater opportunity for surveillance because you've got linkage of systems. Social and economic management and of course trust management, very important for institutions. These started to find their own Identity in their own right throughout the uh, throughout the eighties going into the nineties, um, but of course, as, again, as interoperability as technology shifted, you ended up with all sorts of wonderful opportunities that arose, each with their own complexity. You ended up in a situation where limitless potential existed for the exploitation of each of the aspects of identity. This is new. This is all relatively new. Okay, you can find little sort of quirks of history if you want, but the reality is that that matrix has not existed for that long. I think the first time this emerged was in the Australia card, Australia, Australia's national identity card in 1987. But even then, it was nowhere near this, this complex. Um, so we're talking relatively recent history. 87, because that came to a screaming, that, that, that fell into the gutter, that scheme. 
uh, didn't take much to push that one down because it, it was seen as a, an un-Australian system. And of course, <coughs> move into the social arena, uh, you know, e even greater complexity. That, by the way, is the modern... So, so you see the data flows. I know we're near as simple as the first diagram I showed you. The data flows are going all over the place here. The red silos are your users. Uh, and the, 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 the flow is in multiple directions. And of course, as the system becomes more valuable, you need more of these yellow boxes going up here, which are, of course, all your checks, balances, your information flows in, into the system, like your biometrics, for example. Uh, like paper documentation, verification of your, you know, your, your actual identity. And of course, that system becomes more complex, the more valuable identity becomes. But you see, as I say, these are new concepts that data protection never quite got its head wrapped around. Um, in fact, it's probably fair to say that where we're at with data protection on identity is probably about 1985, roughly. So hard to that's It depends on the country. Some countries are, are more advanced. So where does this leave us? <clears throat> a chaotic jurisdiction, um, an area of law which is uh, dubious at best, uh, with a track record which is frankly uh, patchy, um, at worst counterproductive, but which still finds agreement amongst technologists, against, uh, amongst practitioners, amongst policy leaders and opinion formers. <coughs> I think the problem is that there's a huge gulf between that theoretical agreement and the practice of implementing it. So some of our problems that we've got to face and are being faced at the moment and that you'll hear about is the consent model, for example. Consent is the foundation of so many transactions. But because of this multiplicity of transactions... Consent has now become, uh, well, implied, as you know. I mean, there's three forms of consent uh, in, 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 uh, in common use, at least. Uh, implicit, or implied consent, uh, and explicit consent. Uh, explicit consent being, um, how would you say you being pretty damn direct about your, your knowledge of the consequences. Um, and, 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 of course, consent, which is given by way of ticking a box, which, which could be just saying, yeah, go ahead and use it. But this is becoming, this is the whole Web3 web thing. As the FTC has been pointing out, the Federal Trade Commission, is it sustainable any longer to expect people to constantly be redirected to check boxes? Is, 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 that, is that in any way sustainable? But we, we've been involved in many discussions with uh, industry groups around this idea of consent. You know, is it possible to maintain the internet or advertising um, if you've got a, if you like, an opt-in framework? And there's lots of controversy around this. I don't know, have you got an advertising... Are you focusing on advertising at any point during this series? or It might come up, but I don't think we are having any specific seminar on it. Well, it's, it's, it's a beauty, because um, obviously Europe's 
Europe is doing its best to, to try and catch up. It's got all sorts of cookie regulations around the corner. Uh, but the, the problem that everyone's facing is that if you have a ubiquitous model such as advertising, how do you create a framework where people can give, if you like, a one, a, 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 either a one-size-fits-all or a one-time consent to advertising? How do you notify them? Uh, so, for instance, the FTC and, and the Future of Privacy Forum over in the US and other groups are talking about the lichens, frogs, ducks, whatever, I don't know, um, that will appear on the corner of your screen. Of course, there are people who don't like that and say, you know, get your frog off my screen, I'm not interested. So there's a bit of a controversy with uh, uh, internet users about what you can clog their screen up with. Um, when we've talked, as we, we have negotiated with the heads of a number of companies like, um, like Google, Android, and Vodafone, and so on, where we've tried to deal with the problem of tracking on mobile phones. And our argument is, well, you, know, you really do need a flashing icon to show whether you are on you know, whether your, your uh, <coughs> device is uh, on location tracking mode. And the, the politics of actually getting an icon onto the phone, like getting it onto any browser, is horrendous. I mean, really very, very complex. You've got so many stakeholders involved. So, how do we deal with the consent model? Who knows? Because that's connected with the notification model, which I would agree is collapsing because so much information is being passed around. I think, you know, when I talk to people, um, not, not privacy experts, when I talk to people, it's like Christ's sake. Of course, I know my information is being used. I don't want to be notified. I don't have to give consent. Yeah, I, don't, I really am not interested in that. Just let it happen, and hopefully somebody is watching and will make sure the road is caught. And that seems to be a very common view. You know, they don't want to be burdened by this. Now, I, I do have sympathy for those who are trying to actually regulate um, in such a way that the customer is not overburdened. You know, what makes me cringe inside is this is also the message being given by the most loathsome of, of, of industry bodies. You know, we want a, a light regulatory touch. People have had enough of the burdens and data protection regulations, which are archaic and pointless. As I say, they're coming from a completely different perspective. Um, data processor is redundant. Uh, this is a fascinating one because it comes back down to what I was saying before, that the original model behind data protection was that the data processor is something which you can regulate, uh, you can control, and you can identify and quantify. Um, you can, how do you do that with individuals? How do you do that for an apps developer or uh, somebody who's, who's working with the RFID industry and is creating a good widget for them? Uh, somebody who's got a web page. Um, there was this very novel idea. You're, you're all aware of the um, data protection uh, register <laughs> in this country. The original idea was you create this register of data uh, processors, data controllers. And, uh, you pay your money. Uh, whatever it is, 65 pounds, whatever it is, 35, 50, it's now. Uh, and, and you just tell people in very vague terms what it is you're processing. Yeah, I'm processing uh, information for employment, uh, social relationships, marital status, sexuality, health, whatever. 
<coughs> well, more importantly, I may be processing or may at some time in the future be processing it. So many of these tens and tens of thousands of organisations basically create a, a rider for themselves and consider the £35 in tax. No one can really use this register. And it has become more redundant by the, by the, by the minute as, um, as, as the concept of the processor or the controller uh, permeates society at every level. Um, export controls are an interesting one. When, um, there's this story when when we did take Google to, to Scotland Yard uh, over... Um, see, what happened was that, that, that uh, the, the Information Commissioner here didn't want to take action uh, because of you know, jurisdictional issues, uh, didn't want to take action against Google after they had collected people's Wi-Fi header information. Um, clearly in breach of the Wireless Telegraphy Act, Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, but they didn't know where to begin taking action against a multinational company. So we went to Scotland Yard and said to Scotland Yard, well, okay, you know, you're the police. Uh, we got clear here. Here's, here's the advice. Two clear breaches of criminal law here. Um, do something, please. <laughs> this is actually quite serious. You're, you're talking major league criminal offences to actually collect data without consent. It's interception. Uh, we went into negotiation with the police, who said, look, it's a global organisation, who, who would we arrest anyway? So I said, well, arrest the managing director of Google UK. He said, but it's not that easy, because there's a sort of collective mind here um, to, to collect the Wi-Fi. And the people who appear to be directly responsible for creating this are in Mountain View, California. In the end, the case for the police collapsed. The ICO did nothing. I can't say the same for other information commissioners across Europe because they did take action. And collectively, we all stopped the Wi-Fi collection. Um, uh, and Microsoft came to us actually a month afterwards. They've got their competing system called Bing Streetside. And we managed to actually negotiate for Microsoft to actually publish um, the source code for Bing Streetside because they didn't want anything to do with, of course, the Google screw-ups. They wanted to go to the other end of the spectrum and be the good guys. So you see, some good can come of this stuff, but the problem is that nobody in the regulatory or the uh, prosecution uh, arenas can deal with a multinational, particularly if they're under-resourced, and this is our problem. Um, so when it comes, for example, to giving permission for the export of data outside of Europe, which is one of the principles that we all agreed on, um, the framework is collapsing because you can't just create... It's not like exporting arms to, you know, Iraq. Uh, there isn't a simple license arrangement that you can, you can follow. It's not, the way, it's not the way the infrastructures work. And so that is another archaic framework which is dead. And what do we replace it with? Now, this is what I'm hoping this series actually starts to address. Because these are critically important issues. And of course, right at the bottom here, with all the weight of the rubble on top of it, the question is, does regulation become impossible? I would say 
Um, and I'm reasonably intimate with the, uh, the, the sort of wormy innards of a lot of the, the regulators. That they're, they're all kind of circling the issue at the moment. They can't really kind of get their heads wrapped around what they can do, but they're doing their best. There's an old expression, you know, here, you said it, you know, you said it's always useful to kill an admiral occasionally, it's sort of a bit of, sort of motivation for everybody else. Their philosophy is, you hang the odd admiral. So they'll hang Google occasionally, or they'll hang Microsoft, or they'll find somebody who's a high-profile target and, and you know, shoot them in the foot and hope for the best. Because no one really cares. As I was saying, does anybody really care? Because... In the, in, in the emerging uh, industry sectors, those that, for example, fueled by venture capital, uh, the last element that anyone's interested in is privacy uh, due diligence. Because information is what is fueling the venture capital sector at the moment. So when we went to 50 organisations that had just been top in venture capital and said to them, would you like some advice on privacy not one out of the 50 even responded. Uh, that tells you that actually the emerging, the emerging industries are way out, off the radar screen. Way off the radar screen. And I don't know how we... So we are thinking against the venture capital companies through the Federal Trade Commission uh, as facilitators and hoping that we can actually get this built into the due diligence at the beginning of the uh, investment process but, you know, that could be a 300-year operation, for all I know, and that's just how we deal with it. So those, those kind of, that's just a top-level summary of kind of where we're coming from on data protection. Um, it's not that we don't believe in it. It's just that we don't believe in it. <laughs> we just don't believe it's possible. Um, how, we, how we create a, a, a model that works is probably, strangely enough, elevating, um, elevating uh, data protection to a criminal law. It's one way if you want the slave hammer routine. Slave hammer could work. But, as I say, given our view that's stop them, yeah, they can't even make interception law work. So, do you do, I, I am now moving to a position where I actually believe that we have to do, and I don't want to sound like Lawrence Lezik here, but I actually believe that it's technology, locked, locked down technology, which is going to solve this for us. It comes back to crypto. It comes down to crypto solutions embedded throughout the technology itself. What I say in conclusion is, you know, I don't, and don't buy this stuff about privacy by design, right? There's another, I am talking about that. But when you hear people talking about privacy by design, basically it's a, a self-promotion exercise. I mean, there's nobody... You would be hard put to to find any organisation that's got privacy by design uh, enacted in its products. I mean, I had somebody from Microsoft had the audacity to come up to me the other day and say they believed in privacy by design and they are there building it into their products. Well, that, I've never heard anything so laughable in my life. Microsoft privacy by design, no. It's not going to happen. But we could, if we took it seriously, embed the crypto 
and embed the algorithms within the systems at every level, and that gives us a, a, a level of assurance. I'm not entirely sure any longer I trust law, I don't trust regulators, I don't trust courts, I do trust the technology, and that, I think, is going to be the big discussion from now on. I'm not saying we give up the regulators, I'm just saying let's just see them for what they are, toothless, um, self-serving, sometimes well-meaning, but usually inept. At that point, I'll cease and go to questions. Thank you.